This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In chapter 49, Lydia is found. Mr. Gardner wrote to Mr. Bennett with the news and sent the letter by express. But Mr. Bennett does not feel the same sense of urgency. He does not write Mr. Gardner back immediately. He does not even tell the rest of the family the news. He receives the letter and then goes on a nice long walk away from the house to think about it by himself. Lizzie and Jane only hear about the letter because Hill, the housekeeper, asks about it. This is the first direct speech we get from a Longbourn servant in the novel, and the moment reminds us that the servants hear and know everything, sometimes more than the Bennets themselves. Nothing is private in the Bennet house. When Jane and Lizzie catch up with Mr. Bennet, he hands them the letter and tells them to read it aloud. The gist is that Wickham and Lydia are found, but had no intention of marrying. Mr. Gardner, however, has convinced them otherwise. Mr. Bennett just needs to send 100 pounds a year and tell Mr. Gardner that he is okay to sign off on everything. Jane is relieved by all of this. Wickham can't be that bad if he's willing to marry Lydia for so little. But Mr. Bennett says no. He suspects that Mr. Gardner has handed over a large sum of money here, and he just isn't telling the Bennetts about it. Like 10,000 pounds large sum. A fortune. Lizzie is horrified by the idea of owing her uncle so much money. And she's also horrified by the idea that Lydia will, without a doubt, be miserable for the rest of her life married to Wickham. Here is Elsie Mitchie on the disaster of Lydia and this situation. To me, this feels like one of the narratives I was talking about at the beginning, where at the edge of the novel is a, is a narrative of disaster, right? And Lydia marks a certain kind of potential for disaster, where Lydia goes off and doesn't come become married, and then what would she be? Would she become a prostitute in London? What would she be? And what would it really mean for the Bennets if that happened, right? It probably wouldn't mean you married 
you know, Darcy. And often with the minor characters like Collins. And it's as if there are holes on the edge of the novel where really dangerous things could happen. And then the novel carefully sews them up. So, you know, everybody gets married. Lydia's taken care of. It's all fine. But you feel in Lydia, I think, the danger, right? This is the chapter in which it becomes clear that the worst of the big danger has been averted. Lydia will be in the gardener's house any minute. Mr. Bennett is agreeing to the terms. Lizzie and Jane go tell Mrs. Bennett, Kitty, and Mary, and Mrs. Bennett is thrilled. A daughter, married, and just turned 16. Chapter 50, we watch the Bennetts process all of this new information. Mrs. Bennett is going to go to Meriden to tell everyone the good news and start house shopping for the new couple. Mr. Bennett is reflecting on how he got to this place in his life, the place where he has to be financially reliant on his brother-in-law. They thought they would have a son, which would have kept the land in the family and unlocked the entail. But now, here the Bennetts are, five daughters later, and relying on the kindness of strangers. Lizzie is thinking about Darcy. She thinks wistfully that Darcy would suit her well and grieves that he is lost to her now on twofold. One, the scandal of it all. Two, she'll now be related to Wickham. Nothing could possibly induce Darcy to marry into a family in which his enemy is part. We get another letter from Mr. Gardner with more terms that have to be agreed to. There's the full list of debtors that Wickham owes money to. There's news that a commission has been bought for Wickham in the army in the North. It devastates Mrs. Bennett that Lydia, just married, will be so far from her. Here is Deidre Lynch on what is at stake with Lydia and Wickham being sent so far from Netherfield. Mrs. Bennett doesn't realize this, but it's a way of maybe reconstructing the power dynamics in that family. Lydia is a bad influence on her mother, as well as her mother being a bad influence on on Lydia. They've exerted too much power within the Bennett household. That alliance is broken up by this move. I think that's part of Mrs. Bennett's disappointment as well. Kitty is a character who could be uh, claimed for the powers of rationality in ways that Lydia was not. And that kind of allows Kitty to go over to the other side, as it were. There is one more request in Mr. Gardner's letter to Mr. Bennett. Lydia would like to come and say goodbye to her family before she heads north. Mr. Bennett refuses. She is not allowed in his house. But Lizzie and Jane plead on Lydia's behalf and make their case. Finally, Mr. Bennett, swayed by Jane and Lizzie's earnestness, Rationalism and mildness agrees. They will see Lydia one more time before she goes north, and she will be Mrs. Wickham when they see her. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. So, Vanessa, it turns out that in terms of Regency brides, you and I would have been like straight up aristocrats. Really? 
Well, at least in terms of dresses. And you know how I love to talk about dresses. So we're going to talk about dresses. We're going to talk about wedding dresses as what we need to know this week. I really do love talking about wedding dresses. I love a wedding dress. It's so much fun. But the reason that we would have been Regency aristocrats is we didn't get married in what we think of as traditional wedding dresses. Neither of us wore white. We both got new dresses, and that was lovely, but things that we intended to wear again, they were definitely a little nicer than what we usually wear, but it was not some major one-night-only affair of a dress, because that is not what women wore back then. So ladies of the lower or middle classes would have to wear something that was already in their closet. They pretty much get married in what they were wearing at church. Richer women, though, could have a new dress, but that dress would be intended for repeat wearings, and it wasn't necessarily white. The whole phenomenon of white gowns happened later. It happened when Queen Victoria got married in a white gown, and that sort of set the standard for wedding gowns moving forward. However, if women did get married in white, it was seen as a total show of wealth. Because these are dresses that were intended to be worn again, imagine how difficult it is to keep a pure white dress clean. Think of, you know, think of the dirty hems. (laughs) Far more often, Regency brides would wear blue or green. And if they were poorer women who did afford to find a new dress, they would get a dress that was gray or burgundy or brown because they would need to use it as a practical garment in their lives. And those are the colors that would not get dirty. So this whole white thing, it really started either as a show of wealth and then became the creed occur with Queen Victoria. And all of that is just putting what Mrs. Bennett is talking about in terms of, you know, this whole trousseau, the calico and the muslin, everything that she's demanding for Lydia is even more outrageous in the context of what people actually wore to get married. So Mrs. Bennett is like having high-flown ideas of her own wealth? So I think that in this chapter, we see her do two things simultaneously in a way that's really confusing, right? Like she occasionally has these just pearls of total rationality where it's like she's the only one who's fully breaking it down. But most of the time she's talking in this way that assumes that there are going to be, what does she say, servants and carriages. She's trying to imagine the nicest houses in town for her daughter, which are already inhabited by other people. I know. I love that part. (laughs) And still saying that they're not good enough. Whereas the reality of this situation is essentially barely averting a life of prostitution and the poorhouse. But she's she's just imagining this sort of gentry experience, which could couldn't be farther from the truth. Oh, I don't know why. I find that heartbreaking that, like, she has no sense of the reality of the situation. I mean, I find it heartbreaking on a number of levels, both for her and for Lydia, which is, you know, I think that they've been fed this narrative, this fantasy. And frankly, we are still being fed these narratives and these fantasies, right, about what a wedding day is supposed to look like, what it's supposed to cost. The entire wedding industrial complex is born out of this exact story that Mrs. Bennett has been told and Mrs. Bennett has told Lydia. And so... The idea of some grounding in reality, on the one hand, seems like madness and seems tragic. And on the other hand, 
it's not that far removed from how a lot of people live today. Which I think Lauren speaks to the tragedy of this marriage for Lydia. As much of a relief as it is, it's not just a tragedy because she's not going to have like the dream wedding that she was potentially raised that she was going to have, but she's not going to live in one of these fine houses that Mrs. Bennett is looking into. Not only is she not going to live in one of these fine houses, she's not even going to live in the neighborhood. She is going to live sort of where, you know, we'll find out later where Darcy has sent Wickham off to, and she is going to be sent away because Wickham's reputation is so bad in the south of England that they need to send him this far north. Lydia doesn't know it yet, but she is involved in like a truly tragic situation. And I think it's complicated because part of that shows us the utter failings of Lydia in the same way that we're seeing the utter failings of Mrs. Bennett here. And on the other hand, when you have been told a story your whole life, when you've had promises made to you about what life would be if only you can achieve this one thing and that one thing is marriage, this is what you have been taught to expect. Yeah. I've been thinking about how much the romance genre is tied to thinking about class and class jumping. And when one is fed these stories, I think it's really hard to remove them from one's heart, especially if one has just turned 16. Yeah. I mean, she's practically like barely out of the age in which you could imagine her playing weddings with dolls. And here she is suddenly in a very, very adult, very, very scary situation. The one moment in this chapter that I think Mrs. Bennett shines, though, is upon hearing this news that Mr. Wickham is going to be bought out of the militia and have a commission in the army. Mrs. Bennett is really concerned about Lydia, right? She's like, she might not like the people in her new surroundings. She already has friends associated with the militia. She's really close to Mrs. Forster. What if she doesn't like it up north? And these seem like really apt and thoughtful concerns for your daughter. And Mrs. Bennett is the only person who articulates that kind of concern for Lydia's well-being. Lizzie thinks it, but Mrs. Bennett is like, actually expressing genuine concern for the well-being of her daughter. Well, and for the well-being of a child. You know, it's yes. very much the concern that, you know, you don't want your kid to get sent off to a different school or to go to a summer camp that they hate. This is not the sort of concern that gets articulated when two partners make a choice to live somewhere different together. And I think right. that that's very telling. So I think that there's for me, a moment in which Mrs. Bennett seems totally clear-eyed, and I feel just like breaks it down in a way where I adore her. And it's a different point. It's when she learns that her brother, Mr. Gardner, is going to be paying off some of this money, and everyone's horrified about what they'll owe Mr. Gardner and what it means to take money from him. And she just says, hell with that. We haven't gotten anything from him except for a few presents. I mean, like, if I had been born a boy and he had been born a girl, wouldn't this whole thing have been reversed? I mean, that's basically what she's saying. She doesn't say it quite that way, but she's clearly saying, by dint of my gender, I have been denied all access to finances and he has had it all. And so this is kind of the least he can do because 
he was born who he was and I was born who I am. And this is family, damn it. And I love that. I feel like it sort of cuts through what so much of the entire book is about, what, what the entire society is plagued by. And I, I think to some extent we're meant to laugh at her because she's wrong. Like he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't technically owe her that. But I love that you're right that she's like, yes, he does. Why? This intel thing makes no sense. And this boys get all the money thing makes no sense. And so a little bit of justice here, please. I think it's my favorite Mrs. Bennett moment. Yeah, I th- it's funny. We both have our favorite Mrs. Bennett moment in this chapter, but it's so different. I really love that she's like, but wait a minute. She's been transferred into another fourth grade class. Her best friend is in this fourth grade class. Whereas Mr. Bennett, I think, is really, he's completely dehumanized Lydia, right? He's, like, relieved that this isn't really much of a burden for him. Mr. Gardner dealt with a lot of it. He feels indebted to Mr. Gardner. And now Lydia is just, like, not allowed in his house, which I understand why he's mad. But, like, I don't know. I think that the juxtaposition of these two parents in this moment, I actually think that Mrs. Bennett, delusional though she is, comes out as the winner in my heart. Oh, that's interesting. I, I don't always want to be on Team Mr. Bennett, but, you know, especially <laughs> especially not in this chapter. But I do think that as much as he has been incapable of meaningful action, that is his responsibility, he does see things in a far clearer way. And he he recognizes things for what they are. And has this very sort of fatalistic French shrug about the whole thing. (laughs) Like, you know, well, it's too late for me to do anything about it. So I might as well go back to my old ways. But I think he does within that French shrug, definitely like take a drag of his cigarette, look around and see the world burning in front of him. And that is something that I think I find a little bit more grounded and something I can respect. I mean... I do not want to put you as the, like, straw man defender of Mr. Bennett. And I do not want to be the person hating on Mr. Bennett. He's complicated, and he's funny, and he's charming, and he loves Lizzie best, and I love Lizzie best. So, like, I get it. I cannot believe that he gets a letter, and he knows that there is a household full of women worrying moment by moment about nothing else. And he just walks away from the house with the news. Lizzie and Jane, you know, run up to him and are like, what's going on? And it seems as though it like genuinely confuses him. It's not like he's trying to keep this a secret because as soon as they come up to him, he's like, here you go, you can read it. But it's just like the definition of like an obtuse form of privilege and, like, self-absorption, that he is just like, wow, I have feelings about this letter. I'm going to go walk and not give a shit about anybody else. And isn't so much of it just total sexism, too? Yes. You know, this is a letter addressed to me. It's about business and money and man things. So, you know, before I show these little clucking ducks what the story is, I have to process it in my own man mind. I would murder Peter if he got news that we were waiting for and he was like, I need to think about it before I tell you. That is sadly how he would die. (laughs) But I do think that there's also an element of 
the fact that he's devastated by this. He's ashamed by it. He feels responsibility for it. He, I mean, not that he's taking responsibility, but he does feel like it is his fault. He's already told us that. And he feels like this is going to ruin his whole family and that he has done nothing in his life to prevent it or to make sure that there's like even a nest egg in case of an emergency like this. I think that he is just seeing this as the most dire thing and he's needing to take a moment to think, oh my God, what do I do with this horrible news? It is not good news to him. It may be great news to Mrs. Bennett and it may be a relief to everyone else, but I don't think that he feels it that way. And part of that is his privilege because he gets to choose who he marries and he gets to choose who he communicates to and how he spends his money and all of that other crap. But I do think that this hits him hard and he needs to take a moment. It's just not only his news. Like, he can have whatever feelings he wants, but he has to share the facts. It's just so selfish. And I I don't know why I'm yelling at you. I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at him. I just, I hate this. I hate this response. Jane also annoys me here, though. When Jane, you know, Lizzie is reading the letter aloud and Jane says something like, so they're married. And then Lizzie reads the next line of the letter out loud. They are not married. Right. It's like, put up the joke, smack it down. (laughs) Right. Like this is how out of the loop of reality that Jane is. But Jane's just like desperate desire for this to work out well, as annoying as I find it, is absolutely something I do. It is just like willful optimism because I can't wrap my head around the alternative. As like, he will get better because I need him to get better. And I think that, you know, I am twice Jane Bennett's age. And I think that I am better about this now being like, okay, there's actually a possibility that this is not going to shake out. But at 20, I just could not compute the magnitude of some tragedies and so would just believe that it was going to be okay. That's so interesting. I feel like Jane is just a counterpoint to Mrs. Bennett and to Lydia, where it's like this commitment to a narrative, this commitment to a fairy tale, this commitment to something that totally exists outside of all evidence in front of you because it's the story that you want to tell. And I think that it's something that Austin has incredible disdain for. I don't know, because Jane... Jane was willing to accept the bad news that Bingley just wasn't that into her and that Caroline was a disappointment. The bad news that she can't wrap her head around is that Lydia is marrying a kidnapping liar. And, like, that just seems to me to be born of love, of, like, I just don't want to entertain the possibility. Again, I think it would drive me nuts in the room But I think it's sweet that she just cannot imagine her sister miserable forever. I mean, she's saying about Wickham, look, he's marrying her. That must mean he's a wonderful guy after all. Yeah, she's wrong. (laughs) She's. I just, I understand this instinct of like, I want to believe it's possible. And I guess I do also think that sometimes 
if you allow your optimism to impact the way that you behave towards others, they will rise to meet you. If you treat Lydia and Wickham like scum, he has nothing to try to live up to, whereas he maybe if Jane holds him to a high standard, he won't want to disappoint Jane. We know he's not even that good, but I'm not sure who's harmed in the wishing well for others. I don't think that this is her wishing well for others or her treating him directly in a specific way. This is her deeming how she judges his character based on like a piece of cotton candy that isn't even in front of her. Maybe you and I just are so philosophically differently aligned with this that we can't even this, read. Yeah. It's like a Rorschach test, you know, <laughs> Jane's response yeah. to this. Yeah. To be clear, I mostly find this annoying. And I think that Austin is pointing us to like, get on board, girl. Like your optimism is ridiculous at this point. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Okay, but we have Lizzie's reaction, our gimlet-eyed goddess. And she is thinking to herself, oh my God, my aunt and uncle, the gardeners, are sacrificing a lot by taking care of Lydia. They've brought Lydia into their home. They're gonna allow this marriage to take place in their house, this like sham marriage. How generous, how lovely. And it's very funny because what she thinks is if such goodness does not make her, Lydia, miserable now, she will never deserve to be happy. Which is like, if it does not embarrass her that they are being so nice to her, then she doesn't even deserve happiness. So it's Lizzie wanting Lydia to feel shame. I mean, of course. And I also... I mean, this is the purpose of shame. Shame is sometimes actually really important and useful. And I think that we talk about shame as though it's something that no one should ever feel. But there are certain situations in which shame is an appropriate response to something. And especially in a situation in which there's just so much entitlement happening, right? I mean, The gardeners are essentially acting as Lydia's ideal parents. And I know we've talked to them as Lizzie's ideal parents before, but, you know, they adore Lizzie. Lizzie's the one they choose to go traveling with and write letters with. They can't stand Lydia. And yet they are the ones who are saying, come to our house, 
We have money. We will talk to you about what's really going on here. We will make things safe and okay. But we're also going to really make sure that you know what isn't okay here. And the fact that she can't respond to that in any way is something that I think she should be ashamed of. To me, I find that far more shameful than her running off with Wickham. You find the assumption that everyone's going to take care of her. And that she's just entitled to the gardener's care and that she doesn't have any sense of embarrassment of, oh, my God, I can't believe I've put you in this position. Thank you so much. This is a horrendous situation for everyone. And yes, it's my heart. I'm following my heart. And I'm hoping that you can someday understand that. But what you have to pay for my heart is too dear. I'm so sorry. I mean, you can just imagine how you would respond in this situation. And the fact that Lydia just seems to think that they're boring old people who were like stepping on her dress. It just feels, it's really, to me, kind of the worst of Lydia. Yes. But I think that this sentence says more about Lizzie than it does about Lydia. She's saying like, there's some magical thinking, karmic way, where if Lydia is not humiliated right now, it's fine that she's marrying this scoundrel, she hasn't earned the right to be happy because she hasn't felt shame. Which I just like that it's so spiteful. It's really spiteful. (laughs) It's like she's put us through hell. I want her to be miserable about it too. Oh, it's so funny. I mean, it's one of these tricky things with any writing, but with this book in particular where it's like, Is Austin telling us what Austin thinks through the voice of Lizzie? Is this, you know, her writing the character of a spiteful sister who is not necessarily speaking from Austin's own moral judgment? I read it so much more as as sort of Austin laying a moral gauntlet, but doing it in Lizzie's character in a way that feels far more direct and sisterly than Austin would be outside of Lizzie's voice. I guess I don't see it as more spiteful than the situation seems to reasonably require. (laughs) Yeah, I just think she's saying, I hope she is deeply humbled. And if she is not the kind of person who is deeply humbled by this, then she doesn't deserve to be happy. It's not a thing that a loving parent thinks. A loving parent is embarrassed that their child is being ungrateful, but still wants them to be happy and still thinks that they deserve to be happy. Whereas a sibling or a peer who is like, no, you don't deserve it. I don't care if you're not, because you don't deserve it. You were ungrateful to our aunt and uncle who saved your little tush and you don't get it. So a pound of flesh, please. It is an understandable feeling, but it is like not a gracious one. I don't know. I think it's a statement of the fact that we are people who are connected to other people and the way that we treat them and see ourselves in relationship to them needs to have some bearing in what we get to feel in our lives in some way. And that there is an element of moral philosophy in this statement that I think is where Austin is coming from about, you know, you don't get to feel entitled to use and take advantage of other people and then also get to feel entitled to some sort of storybook happiness. 
I just think that the stakes are very different of these two things. Like, she's saying if if Lydia is now rude to Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, then she should never be happy, right? Like, she should suffer forever. And it's like, well, if a 16-year-old isn't appreciative of all the graciousness that people have gone to and, like, gone greatly out of their way for, I'm not sure I think that they deserve a lifetime of misery for that. I am very grateful that regardless of how big the mistakes are that I made when I was 16, I, because of my privilege and the year that I was born, got to bounce back from all of it and am not fated to a life of misery for it, even though people were gracious to me. But this is absolutely the kind of thought I have, right? Like, you know, if you're not going to be appreciative of that, then you don't even deserve it. That is a logic that I tap into. It's just not one that I think stands up to scrutiny, at least on the stakes. Sure. It is definitely a statement which is inflamed with emotion. And that is so much of what is behind it. And, you know, and resentment and fear and all the things that Lizzie is carrying. And embarrassment, right? Like, Mm -hmm. these people did everything for you and you're going to go into their house and, like, not even be grateful is her concern. We don't know that that's true yet. But I do think that you just raised something which is really interesting, which is because of privilege and when you were born, you could be this person at 16. We are all this person at 16. And who gets to behave badly and suffer for it or not is very much at the heart of this book, right? Wickham gets to behave badly at 16, at 20, at 25, etc. And it's only coming up against like, the foe of Darcy, that he actually has to be responsible for anything. He gets to run from every single situation. Mr. Bennett gets to live in comfort and an utter lack of responsibility, no matter how he's behaved to his own family. It's it's the women who pay. It's Lydia who's paying. And the notion that she's acting like an entitled, petulant, teenager because she's an entitled petulant teenager that that has to determine the rest of her life that is an imbalance here that i think you've first sort of flagged in a way that is really worth noting so lauren we find out in these chapters that the bennett's actually did have a strategy when it came to money management and it was have a boy and that the having of a child with a penis would have meant that the house could have gone to the girls and stayed in the family and that this son could have split up the money. Yeah. And that like that was actually the big mistake was like they were just counting on having a son. And that other than that, they kind of made reasonable assumptions. Well, to be fair, I will say that like the truth universally acknowledged really is that the game plan in this world and, you know, the entire world that predates it is to have a son. That's pretty much Mm -hmm. the totality of the plan. You know, you can sort of imagine, okay, we'll just have enough babies so that we will end up with the right kind of baby to save us. And clearly, as it's described here, there were five healthy girls, and then there were many, many attempts to have another baby, which then makes me wonder, were there miscarriages? How much procreative sex was required between this couple that clearly had no more affection for each other. Like, 
Was there panic around this? Was there resentment around this? How much of these dynamics determine the whole universe of this family that we have spent all this time with now? And on the one hand, I I have sympathy for Mr. Bennett's regret, but it also feels like this can't be the best strategy of many management. Yeah. And there's a a line in the chapter, right, where it's like, by the time they realized his son wasn't coming, it was too late for them to start being frugal. And it's like half a joke, but I'm like, no, it wasn't. (laughs) You You might as well start, right? So if it was a strategy, they never adjusted to the fact that the strategy was failing. Right. And at this point, it's, you know, 16 years that they could have been saving or thinking about their money differently. But just a page later, we hear about Mr. Bennett naturally returning to all his former indolence. I mean, it's clear that he's just someone who isn't really going to bother himself too much with it. It's just not part of who he is, or so he tells himself that, you know, this is his fatal flaw. He's going to just own it, close the library door, and not have to think about it again. And I think that he's a tragic figure in that, and that the tragedy is how much his irresponsibility, his indolence, and the failure of a really rudimentary plan is going to destroy the lives of all of these people. who he has made a family with and who he's brought into the world literally in the hopes that they would be something other than they are. It does help you understand why they had so many kids. Yeah. Lauren, Lydia's married. She's going to come. The bride is going to come to Longbourn. We are going to see Lizzie and Wickham be brother and sister. You know that I try to defend Lydia when I can, right? I do. It's going to be very hard to do in our next episode. Yeah, our girl doesn't shine. So thinking about Wickham's debt and how he got into it, I've been wondering how it relates to how people, I I should say men especially, were living in this historical moment. And, you know, what would happen to Wickham or men like him if debts were not paid off? So we wanted to talk to someone who knows a thing or two about such issues, not a gambling rake, at least not that we know of, but a scholar. So let's call Alex Wakelam, who's an economic historian of Britain at Cambridge and who's written a book, in fact, called Credit and Debt in 18th Century England. Hi, Alex. Hi, Lauren. Great to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about how many people were really afflicted by debt that was directly related to gambling during the Regency period. So 18th century Britain has been called a gambler's paradise. So there was a lot of gambling going on. 
whether it's the kind of high stakes club based gambling between wealthy aristocrats or just over a game of shove hateney in local alehouses. People are gambling all the time. But in terms of debt directly related to gambling, you are going to be talking about a minority of the population in terms of that causing them problems. Most people gamble with the money they have rather than the money they could have. So I'm wondering if gambling was considered to be a social crisis during this period. Well, I think it depends who you ask in the period. (laughs) You know, there are certainly people writing books and pamphlets in London and those particularly of certain religious persuasions who would describe it as a crisis. But I think other people would engage in gambling on a more everyday basis. People saw gambling as just a part of of an activity. It's, It's only problematic from a kind of social perspective because it's seen as a kind of idle waste of time. The term often used is play rather than gambling, which potentially gives you a sense of this, uh, of it being seen as idleness rather than industriousness. But was it illegal play? No, it wasn't illegal, though when we think about gambling more broadly, there are attempts to curtail what is legally permissible. The most prominent example being the ability up until the mid to late 18th century to take out life insurance policies on people you didn't know. (laughs) So literally gambling on other people's lives. You could usually tell the health of the government by how many people were taking out life insurance policies on the prime minister or the king. (laughs) So I'm wondering what would have happened to someone like Wickham or even in Austin's imagination, Wickham himself, if he were not able to pay off his debts? Gambling debts in particular are difficult because you can't go bankrupt on gambling debts. So the alternative there is that they can be proceeded against in court, but that's very expensive and very slow. Potentially, what's more likely to happen to them is they're likely to be arrested for their debts and sent to a debtor's prison. So tell us, tell us about debtor's prisons. Right. Okay. So debtor's prisons get what I would describe as a really bad rap. They come across as, you know, as illogical places, like how is it going to help to send someone who owes you money to prison? Mm-hmm. But that's because we kind of think of people like Wickham as being the, the main inhabitants of them. Whereas actually most people who are in debtors' prisons are sort of middling class, middle sort business people who are owing a, a source of money that comes from just their nature of doing business to other business people. To give you a kind of background on 18th century economic society, while only a minority of people are probably in debt because of things like gambling, the whole of society is in debt to one another for different things. Most people don't use physical money for transactions, partly because there's not enough cash to go around to match the level of wealth in society. So you might be quite wealthy, you might have a lot of expensive clothing or land or a prosperous business, but you might not actually have the physical coinage that you would uh, want to be able to spend that. It, to put it more co- in a more specific way, most people are illiquid in this period because they can't turn their wealth into something they can exchange easily. So instead, people do all of their buying and selling, whether that's for their business or for their everyday goods, or occasionally even when they're paying wages on credit. This is not an unfamiliar concept to us today. You know, I, I'm feeling anxiety just listening to you describe it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite like um, what we can call now buy now, pay later. Uh, but it's 
most people aren't doing it because they're living beyond their means. They do it kind of out of social habit. And business people have this problem compounded for them because they're having to sell on credit. They also have to buy all their raw materials on credit. So lots of people, there's no real hard division between creditors and debtors in this period. Most people are both. And that works pretty well, mostly, but people kind of, it sounds like it should fall apart, but it doesn't because people kind of have faith in one another. And so is part of the the moral attachment to debt and what is perceived as a real issue around that as though if you don't participate in repaying your debt, that entire system based on faith and mutuality collapses. Is that yes. is that part of why why debtors' prisons existed? That's very much part of it. Though in terms of why debtors' prisons exist, they exist not to punish people. Nobody is seen as having committed a crime for being in a prison. In this period, very few people are sent to prison as a punishment for anything. Most people are either punished in a physical way, such as through branding or hanging, or people are transported to America and then later to Australia. So people who are in prison tend to either be awaiting punishment, awaiting trial, or they're there because they are being held by another individual to honour the agreement that they made. We tend to like view debtors' prisons as cruel because they're locking up people who can't afford to pay. But from an 18th and early 19th century perspective, it's more about forcing people to stand by what they said they would do. One thing I've always wondered about debtors' prisons, so you're locked up, you owe someone money, and now you're in a position where you can't earn money to repay mm-hmm. the money that you owe. What mm-hmm. was the thinking back then? It's one of these sort of impossible traps yeah, it is. It's certainly in a modern perspective, it is. But in an 18th century perspective, it's not seen that way, in part because the assumption is not that you cannot pay. It is that you have not yet paid. And that's the whole thing. There's no trial. You're not found guilty of being in debt and unable to pay. Your creditor goes to the local justice provides evidence or swears to the existence of the debt, pays a small fee, and then the bailiffs are sent after you. And so people are often caught unawares by their imprisonment, partly because, as they say, people don't necessarily have cash, but they have wealth. So some people, when they're arrested, the first thing they'll do is they'll send word to sell off as much property as is necessary. And by that, I don't mean like land. I mean, like, okay, let's empty all of that silverware we bought for the living room. And let's just turn that into the necessary cash so we can go back to normal. Other people do new deals with their creditors. They go, okay, well, I'll, I'll work off at this rate per time. And if I fail, then we can go back to prison. And then there are obviously people also have their own debtors imprisoned, because most people who are sent to debtors prison are owed probably more money than they themselves owe by other people. You know, if, if you're an innkeeper who's sent to debtor's prison, who owes £20 to his brewer, but is owed £150 by his customers, you've got a very obvious solution as how you're going to raise money. And the final way is that people do work in debtor's prisons. There's um, a parliamentary inquiry in the 1790s where they go round some of the prisons in London and talk to prisoners and ask them about what their experiences is like and what problems they're facing. And there's a particular debtor at the King's Bench prison in uh, South London who complains that he, he, he wants to be moved to a different cell because the ceiling in the cell he's in is too low and he's got a contract to weave cloth 
from a contact on the outside and he needs to be moved to a cell with a very specific height so that he can move his loom into the prison. And it seems that the only problem is that the ceiling of the room he's in is too low, that otherwise he would go back to work as if nothing had changed. The advantage for the creditor in that situation is 100% of the money that he's making from his from his income is going to pay off the debt rather than 5% of the income being put aside for the creditor and the rest of it going on the business, their family, or down at the local alehouse. It sounds like most artist residencies I've been to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, think of it like that. But I mean, prisons, for example, are full of lawyers. Um, and so if you need cheap legal advice, but you don't need representation in court, then pop down to your local debtor's prison in the 18th century. You can probably get some some advice on the cheap or a new set of clothes. They're kind of like, they offer up a a more genteel set of services and products to a, to a community who otherwise couldn't necessarily afford them. We've been talking throughout this season, of course, about, you know, marriage as a necessary business arrangement and as the transfer of capital. Listening to you talk about all the different ways that that currency and credit existed and thinking about Wickham and Lydia, I find myself thinking for the first time of Lydia as a type of currency, as a type of trade that exists in this equation. And I'm wondering if if you can just sort of lend some of your wisdom to the specific situation in Pride and Prejudice or a situation that, frankly, a lot of young women might face where they're sort of part of the trade. Sure. Certainly, the further you go up the social spectrum, women become more and more of a property to be exchanged. Legally, women are not the property of men which is sometimes said, to a certain extent, it's almost worse. Under English law, until the 1880s, when you got married, women ceased to legally exist. So theoretically, men and women became one new legal identity. But what that always meant was the woman became part of the husband. It's why in a kind of English legal culture, married women changed their surnames. Whereas actually in, on the, in Europe, on the continent, that didn't become fashionable until the 19th century. But it was done traditionally because the woman ceased to exist as her previous self. And so that means that everything that she owned before marriage becomes her husband's. So this ends up applying all the way up and down the system. It's just lower down the system. Women have less capital usually that they're bringing in. And so somebody like Wickham, who is short on cash, for him... Debt imprisonment would be devastating. I I tend to say that debt imprisonment is far less damaging than we think. And most people who go to debtors' prison and then repay off their debts are kind of restored to society. They are returned. And in fact, it's shown as like, oh, you actually have really good credit. You're really trustworthy because you managed to pay off your debts and leave debtors' prison. For Wickham, a person whose personality is all about illusion and this aura of gentility and status, which he never really has, because he doesn't have the money to back it up either. Having been put in debtor's prison would obliterate that. And so that makes his pursuit of any woman with money, once that's revealed to be his motivation, I think to an uh, early 19th century audience, that would make him appear even more callous and predatory than he does to a modern audience. The fact that he hasn't paid his gambling debts to a certain audience would be even more shocking because 
while the gentility have this aura of perfect creditability, they're not always great at paying their bills to tradespeople, but it's seen as that even if you don't pay your bills to tradespeople, the money you have goes to your friends. There's a, there's a quote from the 1760s I'm rather fond of uh, from a tradesman who said that a man of honour, meaning a, meaning a gentleman, will pay no debts contracted to tradesmen or mechanics and does not care if they and their families starve provided he can make a genteel appearance in good company. But he is the most punctual creature alive in all gaming debts, commonly called debts of honour. And for this, he is a damned honest fellow. So the fact that Wickham can't even live up to that insult is pretty damning (laughs) from a contemporary perspective. Oh, it's great to know that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That was great to speak to you. I uh, look forward to hearing it. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. We are in the middle of our Patreon push, so please do consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredbrompod. There are all sorts of perks for joining in March, so now's a really good moment to join. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks, as always, to our Jane Level patrons, Viscount Elise Kenagratnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Real of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Aramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Whenever I see five of anything, I think of the Bennett sisters. There's a goose nearby that had five goslings a couple summers ago. And I was like, look at the little Bennett sisters all out together. Waddling around. Yeah. Clucking. Honking. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com